0: Time. Newsweek. Time like the herb. Time like it's tea time. Like time for tea? Highlights. Lowlights. Popular mechanics. Even more popular mechanics. I look down on those mechanics. Cat fancy. Cat on the weekend. People. Places. Things. Soldier of fortune.
1: Casualty of war.
0: Nickelodeon magazine.
1: Nintendo magazine. Vanity fair. Vanity unfair. Vanity so cruel. Time. I can't sell a thing! Nobody's buying! Let's face it, it's 1997, no one reads magazines anymore. I read magazines, you read magazines, our hamster reads magazines when we line his cage with them. Giuseppe isn't reading them, he's defecating on them. I saw him laughing at a New Yorker cartoon. Listen. He wasn't. It's time to cash out of this
0: money pit. Cash out? We haven't cashed in. We still have issues from 1996 we haven't sold. Then we sell them. We sell every last magazine here and we use that money to follow our dreams. I have dreams. Do you have dreams? Yeah. I don't want to stay here. Do you want to stay here? Yeah. No, you don't. Okay. Great. Grab every issue here. We're going to the one place where magazines will always be king. Is it the zoo? No. We're going to international waters.
1: What it is! All nice and, decent, slip the curl. and to international waters they went, and nobody wanted any. Naked and afraid, they washed back onto shore. Hopeless and defeated, our valiant heroes gave up, only to be saved at the last when they casually sold every last daggum mommy fartin' magazine to one dentist's office. Good job, boys. America could use more men like you. Resourceful. Single. Naked. Desperate. All right. Willing to take. Stop it. Get back to our story. Back on their street corner and newly rich, we find our irresistible champions of capitalism. Good job,
0: boys. America could use more men like you. Resourceful. Enough. Well, we did it. I finally have enough seed money to invest in the one thing I know will always be around dial up internet. What about you? What are you going to invest your money in? Beanie Babies. And they parted ways, as did the world
1: with progress after the ball dropped into the year 2000 and everyone's greatest fear came true. The thing Americans feared throughout the 20th century. That dreaded apocalypse that schoolchildren practice hiding under desks for protection from. Y2K all culture and technological advancement came grinding to a halt. The world was divided into two tribes, those who loved Sugar Ray above ground and those who worshipped Uncle Cracker deservedly beneath. Dial-up internet is the only technology and Beanie Babies are currency and two men who haven't seen each other in 20 years own them all, floating high above the clouds in their custom-built Zeppelins, unaware and uncaring that the other still
0: exists. You bumped my Zeppelin. Pull over, land on that corner. I'm going to slug you one. I'm going to kick your mommy farting butt. Duck your Zeppelin. Let me get a good look at you. Hey, wait a minute. This stinky old corner looks familiar. It
1: can't be. It's you, my old business partner. I haven't seen you since you invested in dial-up internet. How's business? Slow, the way we like it. And you invested in Beanie Babies. How's that going? Adorable and priceless. We're going in such a hurry. I was on my way to Sugar Ray's final concert on the roof of Abbey Road Studios. What about you? I was going there too. Well, we gotta get there before sundown. Ah, right. The crackers. Curse this new world order. Curse my
0: financial foresight and these adorable beanie babies. Yeah, hey, it's not perfect, but we should have voted. Really, we gotta go. We shouldn't be on the surface too long.
1: You remember the good times we had on this corner? Just you, me, and the magazines?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was great fun, and there's great times ahead, but we have to get
1: moving. Magazines. Boy, I sure miss those things. I know, but times
0: change, and it isn't safe here anymore. No. No, I suppose not. They're coming. Undock your Zeppelin. I can't keep running. What are you waiting for? You have to. It's not safe here. Get in my Zeppelin.
1: No, follow me. It'll be all right. No, I just want to
0: fly. I see what you did there. I'm going to die now. Goodbye, old friend. One last thing. Can I have your beanie babies? Leave. The tag's on. Oh, wait, no. I like Smash Mouth. Some. Welcome to Alley Meekly. Hi. Whatever month it is, whatever episode it is. 42! It's um, month 42. I almost said it was August. Oh God, wouldn't believe you. I don't know what happened to my perception of months and calendars. <laughs> months are a flat circle. Um, my
1: calendar is a flat circle because <laughs> it's on the back of a plate. I wrote it on a tire. <laughs> Those aren't flat. <sighs> Well, maybe yours are because I know you don't take very good care. I don't, I don't really drive much. I only drive on really naily parts of town.
0: <laughs> Episode 42. Episode 42, Whatever month it
1: is. The Jackie Robinson of podcast episodes. Because it's breaking barriers and it looks good doing it. People in the stands are shouting slurs <laughs> at us. That's
0: us. Jackie Robinson. Now don't forget the name. And Blanche Ritchie's just like, you keep looking the other way, kid. You just gotta keep looking the other way. But we're like, oh, but I hear them all. What are we talking about? <laughs>
1: this is June. Mm-hmm. We're A couple of little June bugs flying into your pool. Please fish us out. We're drowning.
0: We are the June gloom that looks over June. Everything rhymed. I used the word June two times.
1: (laughs) Which also kind of rhymes.
0: I hope you enjoyed the live show if you came out. Yeah, we loved seeing you there. Seeing you there? One of the best things (laughs) that ever happened to
1: me. When I looked out and said, Hello, Alberto. (laughs) Now let's record a second version when no one showed up. Shame on you.
0: (laughs) What are you doing? When I looked out there and
1: didn't see... Alberta. (laughs) (laughs) I took all of his light refreshments in the form of Mountain Dew, and I poured it right down the Toilet. <laughs> you guys missed out on the second oldest toilet, in- and <laughs> it's,
0: it's a hole. It's a it's a pretty deep hole, yeah. and it's got like a candle in it. But it's just a hole. Just so you know where the bottom is, they put a candle down there. Also, don't poop on the candle. It's hard to get down there. <laughs> this month we're gonna be talking about magazines that were big in Los Angeles or starred in Los Angeles that were that were big in Los Angeles. Beautifully put. I'm a poet. Forty two months in, and we can't even describe
1: what an episode is about.
0: <laughs> I'm the poet laureate of introing podcast episodes. I'm the poet
1: and I do it.
0: That's a, a line from Homer Simpson's book. I, uh,
1: <laughs> Big or started in Los Angeles. Yeah. We've talked about a few in the past, mm-hmm. like the uh, the Advocate and yes. a few other things, but since
0: we've, since we, uh, oh my God, since we, oh, I'm turning <laughs> into a magic! i see got a Xenomorph inside of me. <laughs> Rupert Murdoch burst <laughs> out of my chest. got to come from somewhere. All of our flans. F- all of our
1: flans. We don't have fans. We have flans. We have
0: flans. Our one flan. I'm your biggest flan.
1: <laughs> yeah, we've talked about a few yeah. in the past, so we got into a few that we haven't quite talked about and some we kind of have already but wanted to get deeper into.
0: Some that I plan on talking in a future episode for sure.
1: <laughs> Every episode from now on is going to be about these magazines. Yeah.
0: yeah no, it's going to be like... We're switching gears and we don't want to talk about Ali anymore. <laughs> we're
1: switching gears back to the gear that we're in right now which is, and then we're still
0: <laughs> this is going to be talking about the slow, meticulous process of printing a publication. <laughs> Ink,
1: distribution. It all started with
0: Mr. Gutenberg. <laughs> Movable print! No. <laughs> that won't happen. What, everyone's going to start reading now? They're going to get in these little fantasy worlds? Get back to work. You know that that was a thing that when people started reading books. Yeah, which came first, people knowing how to read or books being readily available? Books being readily available and the think after that. Yeah. Before mass production, I think, people were learn- <laughs> slowly learning how to read. I should get into this thing. I think- You, you know, know, literacy. The way TVs were in the 50s and cell phones now were like, it's making everyone to zombies. Like They thought the same thing about books. <laughs> like You're in some fantasy world? Just have your head buried in a book? What is going on here?
1: Well, come on mother shakespeare i just want to read my book. i want to read my scroll <laughs> roll it up and go to bed blow out ye candle and put on your donkey hair hat or whatever dumb thing they would do to sleep and they were it was
0: stupid everything before 1949 was stupid
1: <laughs> the greatest year 1949
0: was there hitler anymore no
1: nope. no no was there a cold war a little Maybe. bit it was just getting cold light jacket armistice anywho
0: my father died in that so have some respect <laughs>
1: my father choked himself on his light jacket in peacetime
0: oh. please start i'm gonna get us started please i know i i have so much more cold war material Burr.
1: <laughs> nah. so i'm gonna get us started with the earliest entry in at our uh, night i hope you listen to this at night in the hammock in your night after hammock. you ran away from home because yeah. everyone
0: who listens to us is 14 and
1: you put on your donkey hair hat mm-hmm. and you roll up your scroll, scroll up your scroll <laughs> and it's
0: podcast time
1: <laughs> just find your way to the nearest hamburger hamlet because that's what all towns in I, old country <laughs> are called Where's stuff? stuff out thou mustard <laughs> that's how you have to order Anyway, I'm going to be talking about something called the Land of Sunshine magazine.
0: I have never
1: heard of that <laughs> <Neither> before. <have. laughs> I. If you've heard of this magazine, hold, raise your hand right now.
0: Nobody? Nobody in the room? Nobody?
1: Huh. Weird. Interesting.
0: What well, about? you're all being sent back to prison.
1: <laughs> this podcast is community service. You are my sunshine, my Land of Sunshine. You are a magazine that no one knows. <laughs> it may not still be around, and it may not be the first magazine in LA, but Land of Sunshine was the first important magazine magazine in LA, which means nobody remembers it. Yep. During the 1800s, San Francisco had a big magazine boom because at the time, they were so secluded from the East Coast that they could make any sort of magazine they wanted without having to face the competition of the strong, well-established East Coast magazines,
0: yep. which they wouldn't have stood a chance against. What, was in New York City, the like the capital of the world or something? I hate to break it to you. I hope you break New York City. That's the <laughs> reason for our podcast, is to break other cities. We're
1: slowly... My sensei always told me that if you punch <laughs> New York City just once every day eventually um, it'll punch back <laughs> and you're gonna be killed and it doesn't feel good <laughs> during the 1800s. uh, Oh, I just said that. Time is a flat circle. (laughs) Remember how we said we are stuck in one gear in every episode? We're starting now. During the 1800s. So, you know, seclusion. You can all relate to that. So they had a really thriving magazine in San Francisco around that time, you know, the 19th century. (laughs) They put on their donkey skin hats and they walked across their donkey skin bridge, which it was made out of that at the time. Um, Smelled so bad. (laughs) Still does. So they had a really thriving magazine scene with things like Overland Monthly. But by the time... L.A. was populated enough to justify having a magazine that seclusion didn't exist anymore. So the advantage that came with the lack of competition was gone. And L.A. magazines had to fight and usually die against the more established East Coast publications. Like Gallopoli. It was a lot of, like, like Gallopoli. like
0: right when you came out of the trenches, boom, you were dead.
1: Galopoli. Throughout the 1870s and 80s, a few local LA magazines came and went, but nothing of consequence except for in 1877 with the first LA magazine that was worth remembering, Southern California Horticulturist.
0: Oh, that sounds nice. It, <laughs> it sounds, sounds like a lovely. lot of oranges on the cover.
1: So it came out monthly, and in my opinion, that's still too often for this horticulture magazine. There was The Porcupine that was put out by Horace Bell in 1882 cool. that came out weekly, and it was like political corruption and injustices, but most magazines that were coming out around then we were strictly promotional of the supple young town of los angeles oh,
0: boosterism exactly you
1: know like the kind of seat i'm sitting in right now porcupine a porcupine donkey chair, which is a very dirty thing in some parts of the world. <laughs> the early ones were powered mostly by the railroad companies who would use them to draw people in from out of town to buy the land they were selling made valuable by the tracks of their own railroads. Cool. So the circle, capitalism is a flat circle. <laughs>
0: it's also cannibalistic <laughs> and carnivorous. Ouroboros
1: is a flat circle. <laughs> then when the railroad boom ended, this noble mantle was picked up by the various local chambers of commerce and business boards and hotel associations and immigration boards, that sort of thing. All groups who had a stake in the population growth of the city. So from this crowd emerged a man from Chicago named Charles Dwight Willard. Born in 1860, he was best known for being poor. (laughs) No, I thought
0: that was my claim to fame.
1: Sorry, he stole your lack of thunder. (laughs) After he was poor, he went to the University of Michigan, and then he moved to LA in 1888 due to the other thing he was best known for, having tuberculosis. (laughs) (laughs) Another thing that you used to be known for. The old TB Greg. That's
0: what they called me. Here
1: comes Typhoid (laughs) Greggy. He was one of the many seeking the clean, healing air L.A. is still known for, but on top of that, he was sick with another thing L.A. is known for being plagued with, being a writer.
0: Oh, probably at another the old
1: thing you're known for.
0: Starbucks or whatever. I don't know how the how old mm. the phrase the old is. Your donkey skin latte is ready. Oh, <laughs> thank thee. Dip in a pen and some <laughs> coffee and writing stuff. Gross. <laughs> he was trying to charge his walking
1: stick. That's the only reason he was there. Anyway, right after coming to town, he started getting jobs, almost immediately writing articles here and there for different papers like the telegram mm-hmm. and the la times and the herald where he started writing short stories about murder and suicide that were getting published in more well-read publications in the east and up north like the san francisco-based argonaut hmm, it's a little too uh russian for me mm.
0: no, those are cosmonauts i'm thinking of jason, jason and the argonauts yeah. oh that russian spy <laughs> i keep wanting that harryhausen but i kept calling him Himmler. i'm like nope not Himmler. Hi- harryhausen i loved Himmler's animation work
1: he wrote one story about training an elephant how to read yep. called the fall of ulysses speaking of jason and the argonaut speaking of literacy go ahead speaking of references the- that got published in the new york sun and i guess because it had an elephant in it they got confused and it was published as being by rudyard kipling <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that would help your career or not i
0: don't really know it couldn't help kipling's <laughs> no, Hey, I really <laughs>
1: elephants don't read they just talk to little boys in the jungle <laughs> they don't read to little boys in the jungle <laughs> through all this high profile work he became <laughs> pretending to be rudyard kipling he became well connected not just among writers and publishers but also with local police and politicians he was becoming politically involved in the things that he would write for the papers he started being known around town as citizen fix it which i thought sounded pretty cool yeah, worst uh,
0: superhero but it's pretty it's
1: a nice guy to have around he can lead any size pta meeting just fix it,
0: my marriage um so i gotta go
1: apparently it wasn't a compliment, though, because he was called that by the people in power who were sick of him trying to meddle in everything.
0: Oh, it's like sarcastic.
1: Citizen Here Fix he It. Here he comes.
0: Citizen Fix It. Oh, hi.
1: In his first year in town, he was present for the first meeting of the newly renamed Los Angeles Chamber of Commerce to cover it for one of the papers he was working for. And he liked what was happening in this meeting so much that he vowed to become its secretary. And in 1891, he came just short of his dream and became assistant to the secretary. And here's where it gets weird. It also gets weirder to think about the sort of stories he was writing. So the man he was assistant to was his best friend, H.J. Hanschett.
0: That's a made up name, but okay.
1: However, Hanschett wasn't very good at his job. And as we know, Willard was angling for that title. So I'm not here to start any conspiracy theories. But that same year, Hanschett went to Chicago, Willard's notoriously mafia-tacular hometown. And he went there as part of the big Southern Cala, or- Southern Cala Orange Bush <laughs> yeah. to promote an orange carnival. And he never came back.
0: Oh, weird.
1: And nobody knew where he went, and nobody still knows what happened to him. So now Willard was finally secretary, and it was his job to attract health seekers and otherwise immigrants to Los Angeles.
0: That is uh, conspiracy-heavy. You have no proof? I'm into it.
1: He wrote, uh, this potential murderer wrote tons of promotional leaflets and newspaper articles to this end of promoting stuff on behalf of the Chamber of Commerce, yeah. and by 1899, he had done over 35 pamphlets. That had over a million copies made. But what, that's like everyone in the United States at that time. Yeah, But what we're talking about is what he started in 1894 with two friends of his. There was Frank A. (laughs) Patti.
0: Hattie. Hattie. Hattie.
1: It's P-A-T-T-E-E, so I don't know if there's an accent mark. There has to be. Or it's just P-A-T-T-E-E. His last name turns into E.E. E. Cummings' first name. <laughs> so there was him who worked with him in the Chamber of Commerce and Harry Ellington Brooke, who was a British writer that came to LA in 1886 to write editorials for the LA Times and would occasionally write pamphlets for the Chamber of Commerce. One of these pamphlets he did in 1893 was called The Land of Sunshine, and it was so popular that they ended up printing 75,000 copies oh, wow. of it. But Willard saw it and he saw, now that's got more potential. I'm gonna murder this man. <laughs> there's a nice orange festival in uh Why don't
0: you go and take a long walk that, in,
1: On a short orange Yeah, path. There's an orange festival going far on that short pier. You <laughs> might want to walk to it. Step in these <laughs> cement shoes I just bought for you. He thought it could be spun off into its own publication, so in 1894 he invested a thousand dollars into doing just that, and the land of Sunshine magazine was risen. Willard was editor, Brooke was a regular writer, and Pat Tahy was their business manager. June 1894 was the first issue. It came out in Quarto size, which is point. 5 by 12 inches, which i that's like a normal magazine, right? I think so, yeah. Everything is AO normal?
0: Everything's just super usual. <laughs> it costs
1: 10 cents an issue or a dollar oh. for the whole year. It was released under the F.A. Patty Publishing Company with the slogan An Illustrated Monthly Journal Descriptive of Southern California.
0: Nice. That should have been the title of the
1: magazine. That has its own subtitle. A descriptive subtitle for a descriptive <laughs> magazine. They were being written at their headquarters in the Stimson Building and being printed and bound by the Kingsley Barnes and Nooner Company at 1 123 South Broadway. The focus of the magazine was basically to tell people how great it is to live here. They wanted to attract settlers and businesses through articles and they had like a lot of really good photos and illustrations detailing the virtues of the city and the surrounding area and it was also meant to boost LA pride Mm -hmm. amongst people who live there. All 5,000 copies of their first issue sold out within 10 days and they knew they'd be (laughs) (laughs) A-O-Right. Willard, however, had to keep his involvement a secret because his job with the magazine was to convince the Chamber of Commerce to buy it and distribute it outside the city, but it was also his job at the Chamber of Commerce to be the one to decide whether it gets bought or not. So he had to lie to everyone and covered up his conflict of interest, and that worked out A-O fine. (laughs) What's a little conflict of interest to a potential best friend killer? But after only six months, it was becoming clear that this setup wasn't sustainable, because not only was he busy at the Chamber of Commerce, but he also couldn't publish stories in the magazine under his own name because of the double life. So he offered the job of co-editor to a friend of his, who also happened to be the qualified person in the city for this job, our old friend Charles Fletcher
0: Lummis. <gasps> old walkie-talkie Charles Lummis? I'm going to walk. walk from another state to California? He walked across like the entire country. <laughs> he um, walks, he talks walkie-talkie. Why are you questioning that? He didn't speak a word, though. <laughs> he's like the Native American from One Flew Over the Nest.
1: Yeah, he was huge. <laughs> yeah, he was a tall dude. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is he would knock down water fountains. <laughs> Lummis came in strong with his first...
0: Cool with <laughs>
1: <thons>. <laughs> he came in with the strength of a water fountain. His first Article in the magazine was a celebration of the moral and physical virtues of Latinas.
0: All right. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that.
1: It consisted of three words, vava va, and voom. But his- vava viva. <laughs> viva va <viva, viva>, boom. <laughs> his first. Stop that. Is- <laughs> well, come on. What's your non existent sister's phone number? Yeah. But his first editorial boosted LA as a city to be reckoned with and rang in the new era of taking it seriously. To grow the magazine, they did things like sending forms to subscribers that they could give to their friends and family to make it easier for them to sign up for their own subscriptions. Oh, They also gave subscriptions to libraries all over the country, especially the East Coast, to boost their exposure and accomplish their specific job they were trying to accomplish, which was to grow LA, which Mm -hmm. seems to be what everybody's job was at that time. time, They gave them to resorts, to different chambers of commerce and other areas. Passenger trains, steamers had them. By October 1894, 74 newsstands in Southern California carried Land of Sunshine and Willard claimed that by then they were already outselling all other weekly and monthly magazines in LA and San Francisco combined. Oh, the January 1895 issue sold out all 5,000 copies in three days and this was the first issue they had to print a second edition for. Oh. The two biggest newsstands in LA that month said that their combined sales of Harper's, Century, Scribner's, McClure's, Cosmopolitan, and Overland were 385 while Land of Sunshine alone was 527. Wow. In May 1895, the American News Company took over their distribution and that made their circulation go even higher. They started becoming just as popular in Arizona and New Mexico Mexico, but even so, other magazines refused to acknowledge that they existed. (laughs) Living a double life and having your hard work be ignored, this Willard really sounds like a relatable guy. (laughs) Overland Magazine kept claiming to be the only monthly magazine published west of the Rockies, something that Lummis very much hated. He wanted to walk all the way to San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) He'll do it! (laughs) I'll be there in eight years. (laughs) You'll be hearing from me. Finally, in October 1895, Overland Magazine recognized them and pretended to be friends, but they can suck a locally grown Southern California lemon. Because that same year, Willard officially stepped down as co-editor and went on to do such things for the city as found the Sunset Club of Los Angeles, which counted as members, names you'd recognize from pretty much any street you've ever driven on in the city. And he also started the League for Better City Government, which pushed for city improvements and several other pro-rights groups like that. Mm -hmm. But with Willard gone, that meant that Lemus was now in charge of the magazine and he set out to refocus what it was all about. He wanted to get away from it being strictly promotional fluff and to Focus more on the local cultural and intellectual scene. Did
0: that go over well in eighteen ninety five? That was
1: like a, a renaissance in Los Angeles <laughs> at that time. They stopped killing Chinese people and they said I should read a book. <laughs> I should rethink my life. I'm gonna read a book about
0: killing Chinese
1: people. He said that the land of sunshine will be a magazine of Southern California first, last, and all the time, but it will realize that Southern California grows brains as well as oranges. Mm,
0: I don't know if that's true, but okay. Oh
1: huh, well, certainly there's one brain here. Ooh, and we share it. <laughs> We're like the okay. professor from Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, and we both split f- the split brain. brain. And, yeah, I'm left. You always will be. <laughs> I
0: don't know what that means, but it sounded harsh when I said it.
1: Well, it felt harsh when I felt it. <laughs> he made the physical size of the magazine smaller in June 1895 and switched the subtitle to a Southern California magazine. I like slick. It. He also started vague,
0: vague, vague, um, slick,
1: vague. maybe threatening. <laughs> he also started having a short story in every issue. Oh, cool. Like that was his will it? thing. Uh, No, this is. Come on, give me, give me your half of the brain this is Loomis this is the oh, time okay. of Loomis now in the early days most of the stuff was being written by Loomis himself who was oh. known locally as Don Carlos so to not make it look like one guy was writing the entire magazine he'd go by pseudonyms like C. Arlos and C. R. Los. He
0: really wanted his name to be Carlos
1: <laughs> I'm Don Carlos bow to me bow to me <laughs> but eventually he started getting other writers to contribute including names like John Muir and Jack London wow. who wrote two stories in the fall of 19- 19- 1992 they were both about Nirvana. They (laughs) They
0: didn't like them.
1: Why don't they have a wolf as the lead singer?
0: (laughs) This forest smells like teen spirit.
1: (laughs) So that was 1902. They didn't have much money to pay contributors around this time, so instead they offered them stock in the company, from which they never made any money. The makeup of the magazine generally went feature articles, poetry, and stories, then editorials and book reviews, then some like official Southern California promoting, and then local promotions on the back pages. And then they had ads scattered throughout the whole thing, charging $13 for half a page, (laughs) $25.60 for a full and $50 to get the whole back cover. Most of the ads tended to be from hotels or real estate companies. By the end of their first year, they were running 13 pages of ads per issue. The next year saw 24. And in 1903, they peaked with 63 pages of ads in one issue. It's my favorite part of the Yellow pages assume. that they're giving out. Yeah. Call this plumber for your not toilet. Nailed it. <laughs> they sold nails too. <laughs> Lumis wanted the magazine to be as specifically local as possible because he predicted that specialization will become a trend in magazines, which you can write into Dogs and Sweatshirts Monthly to see if that <laughs> prediction came true. So he saw becoming specialized on this region as a way to not have to compete and fail against the big general magazines that already had big fan bases. Yeah. Like, he's not going to compete with Cosmopolitan. Did that exist? Yeah, you said it earlier. Yeah, that's yeah. right. 50 ways to hide your affair with the chambermaid.
0: <laughs> so many Californian chambermaids out there. (laughs)
1: that was another magazine California Chamber made daily (laughs) made daily Lummis was so he was proud of the region he chose the Los Angeles area because it had a source of history that would never run dry you hear that we're never going to run out of podcast (laughs) topics stay tuned for next month's episode on where they filmed E.T. (laughs) Lummis wanted the magazine to be popular enough to live and substantial enough to deserve to live which I've always begged. That's all I ever ask of anyone. Please, be substantial enough for me to not have to end you. (laughs) I know Willard. I know what he can do. Don't make me end you. (laughs) In 1898, they expanded their coverage to include not just LA and Southern California, but all of the West. So This led to more subtitle changes like a magazine of California and the Southwest to the magazine of California and the West to a magazine of the Old Pacific and the New. The LA County supervisors voted to pay for them to give subscriptions to East Coast libraries, and then in 1901 they got an investment of $500 a month for a year to help expand by Phoebe Hearst, who is William Randolph Hearst's mother not his wife as I assumed it would be yeah. she's my wife she's my mother <laughs> she's my child she's my lover they offered two six-month scholarships to the Throop Polytechnic Institute of Pasadena to the boy and girl who could get the most subscribers signed up for the magazine so they just constantly just whatever it out. yeah, whatever could get people to, to hold this s- thing
0: sell the most cookies with a magazine yeah
1: cookies mm-hmm. didn't exist then cookies was a, a term for a scrumpet, which means your chambermaid that you're sleeping with. <laughs> it was the name of the old pair that we kept hiring. <laughs> Miss Scrumpet's here. The July 1899 circulation was just over 9,000, which justified consolidating their headquarters and moving to one to one and a half South Broadway, right in the heart of where all the other big publications in town were. In January 1902, in the final step of severing their birth ties to the Chamber of Commerce, they changed their name to Out West, which I kept thinking was another gay magazine yeah. that Los Angeles created but it's not.
0: It sounds like a good one because it sounds like mostly cowboy themed.
1: Oof. ooh, boy. Lemus felt that this was a stronger name. They were going to call it Pacific Monthly as a Western counterpart to Atlantic Monthly. So we called it. Yeah. <laughs> they were going to
0: name it in a parody of itself.
1: Because <laughs> there was Atlantic Monthly, which is now the Atlantic. It was their fun little way of yeah. balancing the country. But the word Pacific in titles was already overplayed even at that point, And Lemus felt that out West reflected their new broader scope better.
0: Horizons, cactuses, mountains. They
1: still kept on every cover the words formerly the land of sunshine so nobody would get confused. Yeah. And they brought in an artist named JD Gleason to do their new covers. They doubled their prices to twenty cents an issue or two dollars a year. <laughs> in this economy, <laughs> they expanded from being a two hundred sixty page magazine to being around eight hundred pages per issue. What
0: the- that's a novel. That's Ulysses.
1: Yeah, well, follow fall of Ulysses, you know, the talking elephant story by Rudyard Kipling that quickly got cut back down to being a more conservative 500 pages per issue. Only
0: 400 are ads.
1: Magazines used to be really big, right? Yeah. But it, when they were more popular because that's like, all you had for the month.
0: Yeah, yeah they were really big.
1: Greg is confirmed.
0: on our, What is it? The Internet Archive. You can go through old magazines and stuff. And I'm yes. like, how many pages are in this? That's 800. Just, yeah, 800. Just like That's ridiculous. Imagine. Weird everything used to be bigger. Yeah, everything was just from Texas because we used to all be Texas. So everything was bigger. Texas. Yeah, once we cut it off, it's like everything started shrinking down slowly. Now we have, what, like little baby cactus? We put now,
1: our? now it's our movies that are longer.
0: Uh, how did you do it? You're so funny. I don't know.
1: I think I'm thinking of sending that one into Reader's Digest.
0: (laughs) Conan or Reader's Digest. I
1: don't know. Whichever one gets back to me first. (laughs) People love this though. The circulation at the end of 1903 was just under 11,000. But by the end of 1904 it was around 15,000. That year they were now big enough to start the Out West Magazine Company which relocated headquarters to 207 New High Street. By 1907 they had subscribers in Europe, South America, Asia, and New Zealand. But in the end, 1903 and 1904 really were their peak. In February 1903, Lummis already started letting in other editors to train them for the day that they would inherit the factory. That day came in November 1909, With little Charlie
0: Bucket came. They yelled at him a little bit. Then Stop they? licking the magazine. <laughs> Once he put the, the free uh, magazine they stole from, or free, whatever, just yep. keep talking. The
1: everlasting magazine yeah.
0: edition. That's that what you're going for? Yeah, and then they yelled at him, and then they said he got the job go ahead.
1: <laughs> in November 1909 he cashed out of the magazine he walked to whatever crazy <laughs> thing. He did whatever weird thing he liked doing after that without Lummis the magazine lost its soul because that was part yeah. of the deal he had to take it with him um,
0: <laughs> I sold it.
1: It had really become an expression of his personality. He used it to push issues he cared about like Native American rights getting better city infrastructure, historical conservation. He translated a lot of important historical documents that were in Spanish and published them in English for the first time in the magazine like wow. Junipero Sarah's Diary. Wow. We knew that guy who had a lot Scandal. to say. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it was 800. He wrote over 250 poems, stories, articles, and essays during his time there, including his regular editorial section in The Lion's Den. After him, editors like C.F. Edholm, George Wharton James, and Lanny Haynes Martin passed through, but the quality went down and down, just yeah. like the quality of those names did. <laughs> in June 1917, they ended regular publication, and in May 1923, they jumped into the arms of their old enemy, Overland Monthly. Uh, saying help me help me I'm drowning but Overland Monthly said wait I can't swim and in July 1935 both magazines shut down forever and nobody will wow. ever speak of them again. Wow and that sounds like they're underland now. <sighs>
0: See what I did? Send that in with your packet. Yeah. Send that in with your reader yeah. digest packet. I got two jokes for you. <laughs> Lummis is a pretty cool guy. He's, I think we made fun of him a lot last time. He's
1: probably the most... I was thinking, because I remember at one point someone asked us or we were afraid of being asked if you could have like a dinner with four people from LA history, who would they be? And I think Lummis would be there. Yeah, for sure. Because he doesn't eat much and I'd get two portions. <laughs> one quarter portion.
0: <laughs> you know, it's based on Lummis, right? The pig that, man from Force
1: Awakens desert was the story of Ray. Do you know who Lummis's parents were? It's Obi-Wan Kenobi, Luke Skywalker, Jar Jar Binks, and Warwick Davis. I'm going to be talking about Warwick Davis? Warwick
0: Davis! Willow's got so much heart. I want to be talking about? The Daily Variety, an offshoot of Variety magazine. Picture Mm. this. New York City, Bright Lights, Big Apple. Oh, I'm scared. Someone mug me. (gasps) Oh, boy. Simon J. They called him Sime, S-I-M-E. Silverman is working miserably as a bookkeeper in the family money-brokering business. But his true passion was vaudeville. Circus, variety shows, all that fun entertainment Mm -hmm. of the 19th century.
1: Of the time before
0: television. Exactly, (laughs) yeah. Before you can just tune in and tune out. (laughs) Of the time before we were all watching Mary Tyler Moore. (laughs) It's the first TV show. Do you know that? Silverman surrounded himself with performers and entertainers and had a side gig writing about the entertainment circuit for a publication called The Daily America, which didn't last long. But fortunately, he needed waiting wait for the next writing gig at The Daily Telegraph. But even there, that didn't last long. Is he Spider-Man? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter Parker. Silverman, Peter Parker. Sorry. Silverman. I need those pictures, Silverman. <laughs> Silverman was known for not sugarcoating his feelings about an act. After panning one performer, the performer went and pulled their advertising from The Daily Telegraph. So in turn, The Daily Telegraph pulled Silverman out of their employ. This incident infuriated. Silverman. Silverman. Silverman, that's the principal in Ferris Bueller, right? Yeah, they're the same character. Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Peter Parker. That's why he's sick. Because he got bit by a spider. I think there's
1: more parallels in those two movies than we thought yeah. there were, now that I think about
0: it. The Sausage King. Cameron is obviously Eddie Brock. The Venom. So, getting fired for being honest about an act, this infuriated Silverman. The kind of fury that brews a long-lasting mission statement and a passionate, retaliative movie. Have Superman, you ever
1: been so angry you wrote a mission statement?
0: I wrote a manifesto, but it was never a mission statement. <laughs> if I broke it down and made it more cohesive, it probably would have been a mission statement. I got very Dorner on everybody about a month ago. Uh, no, I didn't. That's a lie. I keep it all inside. Um, Silverman wanted to create an entertainment publication that had integrity and his vision became a reality in 1905 with Variety magazine after he borrowed a lot of money from his dad. Variety was a weekly publication dedicated to covering the growing vaudeville and variety circuits. He deemed the magazine very prematurely as the world's greatest theatrical paper. It might have been the only one at the time. His wife Hattie is credited with designing the magazine's masthead header. Within the first year it was already very popular and even though they were surviving on a shoestring budget they were able to hire staff to work on the paper. In January of 1907. Someone apparently published within the pages of Variety the first film review in history. The problem is I don't know what movie it is. It was either a seven-minute comedy called The Exciting Honeymoon. (laughs) Seven-minute honeymoon sounds (laughs) like a waste of wedding cake. (laughs) <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, dang all i do <laughs> it was either exciting honeymoon or a 13 minute film a life of a cowboy from edwin s porter who was the same man who did the great train robbery i feel like my life as a cowboy is the documentary
1: version of the great train robbery there's the fiction version and the non-fiction that, it's like how people they release 3d and non-3d yeah, versions exactly. now yeah they, they weren't sure if movies <laughs> were supposed to be real or fake back then so they did both
0: this was the backup stuff yeah. i know that we shot at you and we threw a train at you last time but this one's gonna be a little bit different
1: this one's true
0: <laughs> apparently i was reading reviews at the time they didn't know how to watch movies so it wasn't like grading something as a cohesive drama screen. it was sort of like reviewing a series of incidents like bandits are attacking a saloon and then there's a stagecoach and then a native americans attack and then a young girl gets kidnapped whether it's the first film review or not here's the review of life of a cowboy it covers a wide range of subjects and the locale seems to be really the western plains the picture runs from a western mining camp barroom to the arrival of a stagecoach at a ranch with tender feet tender feet quotations because that's very offensive. <laughs> the chase of cowboys through pretty woods and rolling fields, the recapture of the girl, and the tragic finale where an Indian girl shoots, uh-huh, a murderous yeah, yeah. bad man. Spoiler, spoiler, spoiler. Oh, you know what? I am going to give it any more away. Basically, their film review was just <laughs> like he this dead happened, all along. and this happened, and he was dead all along. Through his years writing for a Variety... Waste of a wedding cake. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> through his years writing for Variety, Silverman was known for his abrasive commentary and entertainment acts, long investigative pieces, cutting reviews of different things that were going on. Readers of Variety would rely on the magazine for financial news, show business profiles, stock quotations advertisements deal announcements and box office grosses and a lot of that was printed the same day so there was this rush to get mm-hmm. a variety i guess that's the titular variety yeah basically yeah you get all this stuff by 1910 they were doing so well or well enough the move the paper to the second floor building of 45th and broadway the later site of lowell's theater in new york and as much as vaudeville and variety industry clamored for variety the ma- the magazine some of the acts that silverman criticized hated him the kingpin of the vaudeville circuit was edward L. B. of the keith L. B. chain i believe we mentioned him briefly in downtown really yeah yeah i think 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 he was the one that was ousted and then with his company they made RKO pretty sure that was the Albie it's not Edward Albie who wrote who's afraid of Virginia Woolf Uh, never mind I got very confused Albie only expected good reviews for his shows and when Variety panned some of his acts he blacklisted them meaning he refused (laughs) to run ads in the paper and he refused to hire anyone who advertised themselves in the paper as well Albie also told music publishers that if they retained their advertising in Variety that they would never hear their numbers performed in Albie theater ever good guy yeah class act this no Lummis he's no Lummis he's opposite Lemus. He's Bizarro Lemus. He's Simmel. This proved to be a setback for Silverman and Variety but refused to back down and tarnish the integrity of his magazine. But time wore on both these men and they were exhausted by this tug of war, as I called it. So they signed an agreement that allowed advertising of Variety by Albie artists and that allowed Variety reporters into Albie theaters. This rubbed many vaudeville actors known as the White Rats. I don't know why so now ask me. There had been a strike in 1907 against Albie and many of these White Rats clung to the side (laughs) of Variety but this handshaking deal was a smack to the face of any cutthroat strikers. So one of the White Rats tried to shoot Silverman in his office oh my god the initial story was that a white rat actor marched into the office and gun silverman down but that's not really true what it really happened was there was an actor he got drunk and he shot at the window from ground level and Silverman wasn't even in his office
1: I thought it was gonna be like a vaudeville routine he'd go in to shoot him when, but the gun is, clog- is yeah. Yeah, no it's clogged and he starts looking at it and he shoots himself
0: <laughs> classic vaudeville classic. suicide joke <laughs> that's they what vaudeville was built on the amount of suicide jokes it was so funny pre-1950 <laughs> so with the focus of Variety shifting from live performances to movies Silverman decided to open a west coast branch for Variety in guess where Hollywood, California Sunshine. Ooh. Oranges. The palm trees. <laughs> Moranges. Moranges, <but> oranges. Oranges. Oranges.
1: <laughs> which is a meat-flavored orange. <laughs> a orange. And now we're finally in Los Angeles. And finally, Thank after God. all this
0: time in Los Angeles. The sun, what is this thing? Not everything's <laughs> so a building healthy. made of rats. Silverman had been spending some summers in Los Angeles, dividing time actually between Palm Springs and LA. And in 1933, he decided to move to Los Angeles for what seemed to be two reasons. The first was to start the West Coast branch of variety, which was to be called the daily variety with a fun green logo instead of the red logo that we've come to know with the East Coast variety. The second reason was for his health. I don't know what ailment he suffered from, but he wasn't feeling well. He thought that moving to Los Angeles with a refreshing climate would help. And he died two weeks later. <laughs> they found him dead from a heart attack. He really? Yeah, on oh September 22nd in his room at the Ambassador Hotel lying on the bathroom floor.
1: <laughs> Isn't so- that a shaggy song? <laughs> <laughs> they found him in the bathroom of the Ambassador. <laughs> he had tuberculosis. <laughs> Anyways, he's dead.
0: Um, After his death, it was found that he wow. had left 51% of variety to his wife and son, Hattie and Sid, and 49% to his employees employees Which Sid is a really camp. nice, good move on his part. Both Variety magazines, East Coast and West Coast, were survived with a combination of Silverman descendants and a bold editor in chief. His son Sid, Sid with an I, took over after his father died. Sid died along in 1950, weeks apart from the bureau chief of the Daily Variety, Arthur Unger. The next Silverman in line was Sid's son, Sid with a Y. <laughs> after his father and grandmother Hattie died, this Sid took over. His legal guardian was a man named Harold Eriks, who with a Y with and, a an y and a I. I, who started a an office boy in 1915 at Variety with Simon Silverman and then took over with Abel Green before the next Sid took over. After Another, this point, Sid with an E and a weird accent, mark. I'm giving you just the history of all the managers because I'm not going to do it later. There Tom, was Sid and then there was Sid. Sid. And, then was Sid. <laughs> and then it was Sid with two eyes. Sid with a Y and an I. Tom Pryor would be acting as chief of the West Coast Variety from the 50s to the 80s and Sid with a Y's son. Michael Silverman, the great grandson of Simon, would take over in the 80s.
1: I feel like this is a word game just the tongue twister it's a word game that
0: they've mixed with east of eden and after that peter bart and timothy gray oversaw the magazine from that point forward peter bart i know yeah he was a executive for like paramount or something
1: yeah yeah and he used to have a tv show on sunday mornings on turner classic movies it was peter bart and peter goober who was another i don't know who he was i don't know who either i didn't know who either of them were but it was like almost like a podcast but it was them talking to actors and movie makers and it was really relaxing on a sunday Sunday morning. Nice.
0: Were they older gentlemen and they talk in a relaxing tone?
1: They're so old. They would just rattle their dentures at the guy. And, oh, that's just the noise that gets
0: me going on a Sunday morning.
1: That's my church. That's church for that's me. That's church. Um, they do that
0: creepy sound where they have to readjust their dentures but they don't want to use their mouth to so they go Yep, that's mo- that was most of the show. <laughs> <laughs> it took forever to get a sentence out. <laughs> daily Variety took off pretty quickly despite there being a depression going on. They had to struggle for a little bit, but th- they made it through. We through all th- struggle with that. We all pretty struggle the with way. the depression. We all struggle with getting papers printed during our depression. <laughs> daily Variety did really become the showbiz Bible. It delivered daily readings of box office numbers, ratings, cast...
1: Hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves because I have something to tell you
0: about next that might, uh, it might be an alternate what, Bible. Was it printed the same day? Yes. <laughs> getting mentioned in Daily Variety Variety was a sign from the heavens that you had made it in Hollywood. Les Moonves, who was an actor before becoming the CBS executive, once took out a quarter-page ad to showcase his guest-starring appearance on *The Six Million Dollar Man*. The Daily <laughs> That's Variety. Ridiculous. It is everything <laughs> is ridiculous. The Daily Variety introduced a really odd showbiz slang to the public. Words like "bofo," which meant box office. I think it's "bofo." Six, was oh, it Baffo? Because
1: I remember Peter Goober, Bart. God, you cannot stop advertising for this Goober guy. Uh, he's really, you know, you know.
0: Is that what the adventures of Pete and Pete are about?
1: Yeah, it's about two old men that used to be movie executives <laughs> and their adventures trying to fit their dentures on properly. <laughs> He had a book called Bafo I think.
0: Bofo, yeah, which means big box office success. Odors, which means westerns. And legs, as in a film that is a long-running hit. Ankled oh. was a term for an executive leaving a job. They oh. also did these weird-ass headlines. One example I found, they're like, I have to do them in an old-timey voice. Sticks, nicks, Hick Picks, which <laughs> stated rural audiences reject movies with farm themes.
1: They, This is so going along the line
0: of everyone named Simon and Sid. Exactly. No, this is the same. It, like, what was? They had no way to express anger or, or their own. <laughs> like personal anguish so they just did stupid <laughs> i'm gonna things. rhyme about it wall street lays eggs meaning the stock market crashed this didn't die out either this isn't just some old-timey thing i'm talking about this is from january 2004 king nips ship with 11 noms you want to try to guess what that means i'm gonna do it again it's king nips ship with 11 noms
1: king nips ship with, with 11 noms. noms i like this this could be a new game we play yeah. let me think old-timey king headlines King nips, nips ships, ships with 11
0: ships. Ship. Like a ship.
1: Okay, so eleven nominations.
0: King. It, keep in mind, this is January 2004. If that helps. Okay, context. King. King what? King nips. Oh. Okay. Ship with eleven noms. Uh Lord, King of is the, in a Lord of the
1: Rings: Return of the King. Uh, nips. You say nips,
0: meaning like you nip at something, like uh, you get it, like you grab it, you jab it.
1: Lord Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. Uh, sticks a finger in the eye of the establishment with 11 Oscar nominations.
0: You're pretty close. Return of the King beat out Daniel's favorite movie Master and Commander with 11 <laughs> Academy Award nominations. Wow. You got you're really good. You're good well, at this. You're one, of those, you're one of those Hollywood kids, you know? I you read, I read Baffo. <laughs> <laughs> and I watched The Denture Brothers on <laughs> the a Denture Sunday morning. Brothers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I watched The Adventures of Pete Pete every morning. <laughs> Daily Variety felt like its own guest star in shows. I certainly remember it being a staple of many episodes of I Love Lucy. Lucy cut so many squares out of variety to keep Ricky from finding stuff out.
1: (laughs) Let me try to come up with a headline for Little Ricky. Okay. Baba Cuba. Baby Bongo. (laughs) Baby Bongo beats red sillies.
0: I don't know. As long as you say it in an old-timey voice, I'll take it. Apparently, it had a big to-do in Argo, but I didn't watch Argo. But I read that sentence enough times for me to believe it. Through the years, the Daily Variety... Argo,
1: research yourself. You wouldn't get it.
0: I'm glad that you had your mouth full of water and you swallowed it and you thought that out and you're like, yeah, I'm going to say that. This
1: is worth it. (laughs) This will be good for me. This was...
0: This was good for me. <laughs> Through the years, the Daily Variety reported on many historical events. On May 3rd, 1945, the headline read, Studios Work V.E. Day, announcing that studios would... Clingy Cuban Cucks Comedy Queen. That's fantastic. There. May 3rd, 1945, the headline reads, Studio Work V.E. Day, announcing that studios would go about their daily business instead of celebrating the day that World War II ended. Back to work. Why would I want that day off? Like, why- Like there's sailors kissing nurses. Why would I... I'm writing about Orson Welles eating the 14th tuna sandwich. What do I care, right?
1: <laughs> Corpulent Kane chows, Chicken of the sea. Citizen Chow. <laughs> Citizen Chow tosses tuna. Duh.
0: Another headline, another issue read, Hitler's exit puts new life onto Frisco stage. I don't know what that meant. What? That's also about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's about Tolkien. Daily Variety went on to cover the comedy witch hunt in Hollywood, the upheaval of the entertainment industry during the civil rights movement, and the impact of September 11th. With great-grandson Michael Silverman at the helm of Daily Variety, the magazine underwent a radical redesign, converted from manual typewriters to a fully computerized newsroom, and he launched several new products, including the just-introduced Screening Guide, for the Oscar voters. In 1987, the paper was sold to the Connors Publication Company, a division of the British owned Reed Publishing Company. After this, the West Coast and the East Coast branches of Variety were merged and it became an all inclusive entertainment publication, Variety. Prior to the merger, that New York publication circulated to 30,000 readers and the Alley publication served about 22,000 readers. The 20th century has not been kind to nope. too many paper publications, and nope. as the years pass more the and days more. Days of
1: 800 page nah. issues are long gone. In 2013,
0: with their numbers waning, the Daily Variety decided to cease printing five days a week and simply Mm -hmm. went down to tuesday issues of variety weekly variety would stop publications altogether and the variety for the most part would exist online it would also drop a paywall and be free for readers online a move made by their rival dhr hollywood reporter the hollywood reporter theo's only one but many consider variety to be one of the most renowned and vital entertainment reportings out there not only because of their output but because the name means something after all these years
1: but variety still puts out like a.
0: Print thing, yeah, like once a week, mm-hmm. but we don't have like our own, like just West Coast, like it's yeah, it's, it's all because it's all the world's connected because we're all in the internet. Uh,
1: don't remind me. Oh God, I'm supposed to be able to communicate easily with someone in Montana? No, no, I don't. Why would I want to? Okies, <laughs> those Montana Okies, Mokies, Mokies. Variety and Hollywood Reporter. When yeah. we first talked about, it, I was like, well, oh, those are trade papers. Those yeah. are a daily thing, but not anymore. They yeah, are, they're we- they, they are weekly now. I
0: was interning for a screenwriting whatever show off, and they made me go get a copy. Be a variety, and I never bought one before, and I didn't know where to go. I was like, "Where did you stand?" Like, I was trying to remember. <laughs> do all I the have I to love go Luc- to Adolf Zucker's <laughs> office? I remember Are the Warner Brothers selling. I was Trying to remember where they went in uh, I Love Lucy. I'm like, oh, "Is there a pharmacy around here?" <laughs> I gotta get to the Beverly Hilton. <laughs> gotta get the bellboy again. Maybe I'll run into Rock Hudson. <laughs> and he can can let me eat. loan his coffee. I stole one from Lucy Ricardo. All the pages were cut up. <laughs> There's just squares missing everywhere. What did you do this time, Lucy? I got him fired. I <laughs> I got him fired and rehired and then fired. <laughs> you can be a variety boy yeah, if you I'm want. I, listen, I like a little vaudeville in my life. I like a little circus act. You know, I like a little, okay, we're in someone's backyard in North Hollywood and they're like, this is a Circus Geek. I'm like, sure they don't mean that for sure. There's a guy back there in a garage. He's kind of tubby. He looks like he hasn't spoken like a like a four-syllable word in a year. And he bites the head off a chicken. And I read about it in the
1: Daily Variety. And they called him the
0: man-eating chicken.
1: Yeah. And that movie I lived in? Little Rascus. <laughs>
0: that little boy who I was? Spanky. <laughs> I'll never be on Alfalfa. And you know what? I don't want to be. I'm more of a froggy. <laughs> but that's variety. How about yeah. the Hollywood Reporter? THR. You know, variety's all
1: nice and good. But how about it's time you settle on something and have, you know, Hollywood Reporter? Hollywood? Ever heard of it? That's where I made my million. <laughs> <laughs> ever heard of it Hollywood the place that I now go to pee on homeless people heard of or heard of it ever heard of my movie the Minions movie <laughs> <laughs> you might know me beady boo boo bee <laughs> that was me I'm the Minion Ever heard of it? Talk about
0: The Hollywood Reporter.
1: Okay. X-Tree, read all about it. God damn it, never mind. L.A. Meekly revisits a character they already kind of talked about. We never do that. Except for this story and the last story. Uh, We've already discussed what role the founder of The Hollywood Reporter played in The Hollywood Blacklist. If you want to go back and listen to that god-awful story. But now let's focus on the other gross things he did and the huge magazine he founded. William R. Billy Wilkerson was born 1891 in Nashville, Tennessee.
0: Willie Wilkerson?
1: almost (laughs) Bilking Wilkerson (laughs) he was the son of a man who went by the name Big Dick (laughs) who on top of having a knack for not embarrassing nicknames he also had a huge gambling problem
0: I was so glad that's what you said after he was (laughs) to gambling (laughs) debt
1: an irresistibly phallic mental addiction according to legend big dick won the bottling rights to coca-cola in 13 states in a poker game then traded it for a movie theater then sold the theater and lost the money he made from it in another poker game all within two weeks he was a made man three times over i was jokingly gonna say what in like two weeks yeah two weeks that's that's what happens when you have a a gambling addiction (laughs) but little billy wanted more you know little dick he moved to philadelphia to study medicine but when his dad died in 1916 big dick left him the one thing he had always wanted insurmountable gambling debts
0: not his name (laughs) go by my
1: embarrassing and unself-aware (laughs) nickname
0: have someone chisel it on my tombstone
1: (laughs) if they remember me for one thing It should be my nickname, (laughs) Big Dick. (laughs) Little Dick quit school and moved to New Jersey to be with his mom and settle the debts by getting a job in a silent movie theater that his friend owned in Fort Lee. Then he worked his way up and eventually became district manager in charge of distribution for Universal Pictures. And in 1927, he opened up his very own movie studio. It failed immediately. And then the depression hit. (laughs) He lost all his money because he was a partner in a movie trade paper and he lost it all in the stock market. But as he realized, how could you put on a trade paper in New York and New Jersey so far away from the new movie mecca, Hollywood? So in 1930, he moved to Hollywoodland, and on September 3rd, the first edition of the Hollywood Reporter THR was released. Their headquarters. That's a good story. Their head. The end. <laughs> and they're still going strong and nothing bad ever happened. Big Dick came back to life and he won Coca Cola. <laughs> their headquarters were at 1606 North Highland Avenue. They were reporting on the comings and goings of the local studios and the people who worked for them. Originally, it came out six days a week, top that variety. That's more than daily. But in late 31 to early 32, they went Tuesday to Saturday. Then in mid 32, back to Monday to Saturday until June. 1940 when it did Monday through Friday. And they kept that up for a very long time. Their original slogan was, Today's Film News Today. Today. uh, Now. It was uh, highly stylized like uh, like yours was. They used industry lingo, made up their own insider jargon. They called studios the plant, and directors wouldn't direct, they would megaphone. It's kind of fun. It's fun. They had the rambling reporter column written by Billy's second wife, Edith Gwynn. The managing editor was Frank Pope, but the paper was Billy's. It was in Billy's voice. Which sounded like this.
0: I'm a little bit. I want to talk about
1: Hollywood. <laughs> I didn't think too much of Gone with the Wind. The voice was set out by his Trade Views column that would be in every edition for 33 years. Every single paper he had this column in. And being in Billy's voice, that meant that this wasn't going to be like any other publication that covered the film industry. It was usually just churned out studio approved puff pieces, Daily yeah. Variety. Billy was out for celluloid blood. That's what he drinks. What a
0: vampire. What well, 24, 24 frames per second, second vampire.
1: vampire. no 24 frames per second.
0: Wow. Don't hurt your arm making that stretch, friend. Ow. So
1: he'd have squibs, which were one or two sentence articles that talked about minor things like which star was going on vacation, but also what problems that productions were having. He'd be critical of movies and would often give advice to the studios on how to make better movies, which usually went along the lines of make better movies. (laughs) The studios hated The Hollywood Reporter because they were making public things like salaries and controversies, which the studio heads tried so hard to keep secret to maintain the illusion of glamour, so the Mm -hmm. reporter was banned from a lot of studios in the early days. Guys like Louis B. Meyer and Adolf Zucker would have meetings to discuss how to put the magazine out of business. Supposedly, the head of publicity at Fox would have stacks of the Hollywood reporter burned in front of his window every morning so he could watch the smoke rise. That's pretty cool. Dramatic, cool. Just what you'd expect from Fox. (laughs) Dramatic and cool. Just two months in, even though they were immediately popular, the magazine couldn't make payroll and they almost had to shut down, but a friend gave them some money to stay afloat. And then an agent named Myron Selznick started his own agency and wanted to get his name out there, so he took out 90 days worth of ads in the paper, which kept them going, and then that led to more advertisers buying in, and then the New York-based big companies got involved, and they were often reporting. They became required reading very quickly in Hollywood and faced no competition for three years until some dumb other magazine we'll never talk about again came around. A few years in, they moved headquarters to 6713 Sunset Boulevard where they stayed until the early 90s when another magazine we're going to be talking about, L.A. Weekly. Weekly moved in, who stayed there until 2008. It really was a local publication since it dealt directly with Hollywood, and it didn't sell huge amounts outside of Southern California, but it was huge in town, and Billy used it to place himself in the position of being one of the most important and powerful people in show business, a position he quickly started abusing by threatening (laughs) studios that if they didn't advertise in The Reporter, Mm -hmm. their future movies wouldn't be talked about in The Reporter. The Screenwriting Guild, they fought back against this by finding the members who took out ads in The Reporter. Then Billy fought back against that by not running writing credits alongside those of directors and actors, which is why movie writers still aren't as well known as actors and directors are because of this little dick. (laughs) Yeah, Billy was a force to be reckoned with. He was always well-dressed. He owned a mansion in Bel Air. He had five cars and even more wives. He had six wives. He drank Coca-Cola constantly, which led him to discover Lana Turner at a soda fountain across the street from Hollywood High School. The sweater girl. They were both buying Cokes. In 1934, he decided that the Hollywood Reporter would give out its own end of the year movie awards in direct competition to what was going to be the sixth ever Oscars but under Billy's rules the voting was open to all people who worked in the industry not just Academy members and he announced the winners a day before the Oscars to undercut them but the Oscar for least commitment went to him because he only did this once Ah, ah. he also spread his wealth into other businesses in 1933 he opened the Vendome restaurant across the street from their headquarters on Mm -hmm. Sunset Boulevard in 34 he opened Cafe Trocadero and in 40 he opened Ciro's, which is now the comedy store, but a love of Coca-Cola wasn't the only genetic trait he shared with his dad, Big Dick. They also shared big, long gambling addictions. Oh no!
0: You think that thing passes on when you watch being your parents abuse as a child? You yeah. grow up
1: into right into it. Well, when his dad was dying, he threw up all of his gambling addictions on him, like the Green Mile. Yeah, uh, it, it was exactly like that. Trust me. On several occasions, Billy blew the payroll of the reporter gambling and then would have to get it back in loans from Howard Hughes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The one person to understand his plight.
1: So you come to me on the day of my fingernail trimming.
0: (laughs) On the day of me building this enormous plane that can't even lift off the ground, but I refuse (laughs) to back down.
1: He would also give prepaid ad space to the head of Fox. Like That's how he would make up for his debts. Billy decided the best way to deal with his gambling addiction was to tackle it head on by opening his own casino that he Mm. could gamble in and that way if he lost the money it would still be coming back to him he saw it as recycling in 1940 he opened a casino resort in lake arrowhead which turned out to be illegal and was quickly closed (laughs) then in 1944
0: how far into building it before he realized it was illegal completion
1: (laughs) opening day
0: Uh, big scissors police shutting him down (laughs) he's handcuffed to big scissors i don't know then in 1944
1: he gambled away seven hundred fifty thousand dollars in las vegas and decided it was time to open up his own there so he started building what would become known as the Flamingo Hotel, but in 1946, he ran out of money again, so he went to the most logical loan giver he could think of, east coast gangster meyer lansky who gave him the money <laughs> Oh my God. but sent as his representative the just as up and up bugsy siegel oh, bugsy bugsy almost shot gerbils oh yeah you i remember you telling yeah. me about that sorry i feel like you should tell that story have when where did we i read it, it
0: in uh it's in alley noir yeah. bugsy was with his mistress who was a countess and they ended up in italy and it was during the 40s <laughs> said that they were working on some sort of real estate thing i don't remember uh
1: concentration something i don't <laughs> <know>.
0: <laughs> I don't remember some sort of estate in auschwitz i don't know so they Get to wherever they were living, I believe in Italy, and the Nazis have taken it over. And Goebbels was there, and Goebbels was rude to Bugsy. He's like, "I'm gonna whack this guy." <laughs> like, I don't like. Like, it wasn't anything to do with like Nazism. <laughs> um, he was just a. He was just a big <laughs> dick to him. He
1: was a Billy Wilkerson <laughs> senior.
0: <laughs> That's one of those stories from L. A. It's, it's like a
1: weird mashup of. Yeah, it's um, like Abraham Lincoln versus zombies. Imagine Jewish gangsters versus high up Nazis.
0: Imagine the headline: an L. A. Gangster shot oh. a high ranking Nazi Ooh, officer. That'd be great. Ooh. Oof. It still could happen. <laughs> I mean, this is all relevant. Again. All <laughs> these sadly. players
1: are back. So he was now paired up with a Nazi-shooting Bugsy Siegel, who Billy constantly got into disputes with regarding who was in charge of designing the casino. Yeah. Eventually, Billy gave up his control to Siegel in exchange for stock in Siegel's hotel company to the point that Billy now owned almost half of Siegel's company. In 1947, Siegel intimidated Billy into cashing out of the Flamingo for $600,000 and then proceeded to threaten Billy's life which sent Billy to Paris to hide out for several months. During this time, Siegel was mysteriously rubbed off. Rubbed off? Or bumped off? Mysteriously? No, well, he was, he's dead. He's he dead. was, was it, murdered. Was it
0: <laughs> mysterious, though? Yeah, it was
1: mysterious as a gangster's death to me <laughs> in <laughs> Las be Vegas. Shot in his he living He was room. godfathered, too. Some suspect it was Billy who ordered the hit. Oof. But because of his involvement with the Flamingo, Billy is sometimes credited with creating the modern Las Vegas. So this weirdo, he killed a major gangster and started, started Las Vegas. If that wasn't enough to damage someone's reputation, in 1946, Billy did just about the worst thing he could possibly have done, which we talked about in our Blacklist episode. He wrote a big expose in his column in The Reporter, exposing the communist conspiracy in Hollywood and named names, and basically started The Hollywood Blacklist. He hated unions, he was bitter against the studio system, and he blamed them for the failure of his old studio, so this is the very mature way he chose to work through that. The Reporter got banned by all groups that were against HUOC because of this, and it lost a lot of respect in town, but it didn't really have an effect on their circulation numbers. In 1947, they had some 6,300 subscribers, and by 1967, they had over 10,000. You can hear more about that, the details of that in the other one, but Billy never acknowledged the damage that he caused. Why would he? He said, what I think and write doesn't have much influence. I can't reform Hollywood. No one can, thank God. Luckily, he smoked three packs of cigarettes a day and died of emphysema (laughs) on September 2, 1962, at age 72. His sixth wife, Beatrice Ruby Noble, a.k.a. Tishy, took over as the publisher when he died and apologized for nothing her husband had did to damage people's lives in the 40s and 50s and his obituary even celebrated the things that he did. Wow,
0: Tishy's not great either. Maybe she should smoke a bag of cigarettes a day. (laughs)
1: Give these a taste, Tishy. (laughs) Tishy led the reporter onward and upward for several decades. In 1986, they launched their monthly Hollywood Reporter magazine and by 1988, they had weekly circulations of just under 22,000. In April that same year, Tishy sold the magazine to BPI Communications for 26 six point seven million, still no formal apology from the reporter. In nineteen ninety seven, one of their reporters wrote an article about the reporter's role in the Blackwist, the Blackwist, and they refused to publish it.
0: Whoa. Daily variety? What did they would have published
1: it. Daily Variety, they were too busy, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They don't commit to anything like the Hollywood Reporter committed to shining
0: light on commies. <laughs> and a hard light. A light so bright it looks like an electric chair, which, where are they going to send you?
1: A light so bright it ended your career. <laughs> going through the early 2000s, the Reporter and its dreaded no-good competitor were severely undercut by the growth of websites like The Rap and Deadline and IndieWire that provided all the information that they were giving only faster and for free. They also had lots of big layoffs in 2008 when the recession hit. So to deal with this, they brought in Janice Min from Us Weekly as the editor who revamped everything. She made their website good and in a huge break from tradition, she changed it from a printed daily trade yeah. paper to a glossy weekly magazine which upset many people because of her Us Weekly background. They feared it would become a consumer magazine rather than a trade informer, but they saw that wasn't the case pretty quickly. The yeah. articles became more in-depth and thoughtful and they were hard-hitting. And just a year after Min took over online visits on their website, rose. 800% Shh. to 4.5 million. So it was a big success. In 2012, Billy's son, William Wilkerson III, Triple Dick, finally issued a formal apology on his dad's for behalf him. for the role in The Blacklist. They followed that up in 2013 by starting a style website called Preto Reporte.
0: fancy boy. In 2015,
1: the magazine was again losing 25 to $30 million a year and was sold to Todd Bowley, who is a co-owner of the A24 production company. Also has a gambling game. I think the, the, the witch. Yeah, the the witch was... Uh, the he lost a bet. The V-V-I-T-C-H. The v- yeah. And he also owns... He's a co-owner of the Dodgers. Oh, so okay. the end of this story is yet to be... Ri- t-
0: no! That's theatricality. Big dick style. Well, wait here for the sort end.
1: Oh, they just shut down. Okay, we can keep going. <laughs> oh, and, Russia owns them now.
0: And they've been hacked. Slash magazine mm. ran 29 issues between 1977 to 1980 and was the most influential punk magazine from Southern California. It hit right at the right time. Punk on the West Coast really reached a frenzy between 75 to 82 and Slash was there to cover everything that happened. It was centerpiece to this scene. Slash started as an art project between Steve Saminoff and Melanie Neeson who were dating at the time. they want st- I don't know. And they were just friends. I don't know. Yeah, and they kiss. They kiss on the printing press. Ooh. <laughs> they were both deep in the alley punk scene that was starting to thrive in Hollywood at the, there's a place called The Mask. and I forgot Madame Wong's place. Nisin was a photographer who had been photographing the scene, and Saminoff was a graphic artist, I believe, but was working for a group of small newspapers on Crenshaw Boulevard for money. They were both artists, as was almost everyone in that scene, except for Pat Smear, who was just a dirtbag. Unlike the New York and England punk scenes, the alley punk scene started much more artsy fartsy and fused that with the punk sounds that were coming from other scenes, like the Screamers or X There's always been An argument of which Punk scene started first England or New York So it's been clear That Ali was never the first It was always like The little brother mm. But Ali's scene lasted Much longer And it was much more diverse Because I saw what Everyone else was doing we're Like well we're gonna Kind of do that But we're gonna wear shorts Because it's hot over here <laughs> New York had Punk Magazine England had Sniff and Glue Now the new Ali Punk scene Would need to be documented So they're gonna start A fanzine for that Slash Slash would Slash. that be So in 1977 Saminoff and Neeson Decided they wanted To fuse their talents And make a weekly Tabloid sized fanzine Dedicated to Ali Punk scene
1: Now is that Demi
0: Quartrow? What are you talking about? Size, yeah, I'm talking about size. I thought you were saying Susie Quattro, which was a singer. I thought you said that, like, I, you, but you know, you so give me much. too
1: much credit for knowing about punk. Susie Quattro, I was know bland. a lot about magazine sizes. <laughs> though.
0: They would call it slash, which is British slang for urination. I don't know why they would use right? British slang for that. I've why would even...
1: that be a slang for urination? I have maybe maybe no because idea. it looks like it's like a slash through the air,
0: <laughs> yeah, probably what it was. Yeah. Why are you going to use British? Okay, it was printed on cheap paper
1: we don't have slang, they would have called it bodacious, <laughs>
0: Cowabunga, bitchin'. I don't know, In, In
1: and Out magazine.
0: <laughs> I just read article today saying people voted five guys yeah than i saw him. that
1: but who voted that Nobody. like i've
0: never five no one, guys yeah i won five <laughs> to nothing Slash printed on cheap paper and featured nissen's photographs original interviews album reviews flyers for upcoming shows as well as other artistic contributions from their friends who were in the scene some of the writers were also from the bands that were being covered claude kickboy faced bessie front of the band catholic discipline and on wikipedia they list him as a founder of the scene but i don't know if that's true but he did write editorials and reviews also, uh, i was
1: also a founder of the scene uh, <laughs> check my wikipedia
0: imagine in the day when we get a Wikipedia page, oh God, and it says that we were at the forefront of the LA punk scene, yeah. because we added it ourselves. The new LA
1: punk. Yeah. <laughs> they shot JFK.
0: No. Oh, oh, who'd have thought? born Jeffrey Lee Pierce from the band the Gun Club contributed, as did Christy of the Flesh Eaters. I'm so out of my element right now. It's okay. Christy came into the stables where I worked, and he didn't like me very much
1: because <laughs> he knew that you started the punk scene.
0: You read the Wikipedia page. He checks. It I know every day. you. I know what you're. About. I know
1: you. You scared me. I'd
0: say it like Lucy. <laughs> you scared me. <laughs> if anyone knows what episode is that from, please let us know. Rand- Redhead uh. <laughs> recoils. Seenster <laughs> Pleasant Giham or Guilliam, I don't never know how to say her name. I've been looking at her name for years now and never knows Pleasant Guillaume of the Screaming Sirens and just being in every photograph of the scene I've ever seen. She contributed as well. The first issue was put together very quickly with Semenoff using tools from his day job to produce the layouts, and Neeson borrowing a dark room to create prints that belonged to her mother's boyfriend, Marvin Rand, who was an architect. You know your cousin Marvin Rand. Mm. You know that new punk scene you're looking for? Well, well Greg and Daniel started it. Check Wikipedia. <laughs> Marvin Rand was an architect photographer who rivaled Julius Shulman in capturing the houses and buildings in the city I, again this is all going over my mohawk okay. head. and it's pretty high it's so I mean, your high ne- your neck looks like it's in pain uh, it was put out in May of 1977 and sold for 50 cents wherever they could sell it Tower Records which is known for being like um oh, rock and roll and super hip wouldn't sell the first issue of Slash <laughs> because they thought it was a monster magazine uh, granted what? granted though the cover of the first issue had Dave Vanian of the pioneer British punk band Damned on the cover and he's doing what he does best, which is looking like a vampire. In the take inter- this to Forrest Ackerman. <laughs> Uncle Forey will take it. What is this? What is this? I don't know what you kids my, are talking about. My ears are bleeding. <laughs> this doesn't sound like a saw being wiggled, <laughs> like I like to hear. Printed on basically the same kind of paper that yeah. the famous monster was printed on. In the interview with Dave Vanian, the members of the dam badmouth almost every other punk musician working at mm-hmm. the time. The interviews done with Slash, were usually pretty raw and informal, proceeded drunkenly and without preparing any questions. In the first issue, they put out a a mission statement which captured the creativity and underlining optimism of the scene. The magazine was built out of curiosity and out of hope. Curiosity regarding what looks like a possible rebirth of true rebel music. Hope and its eventual victory over the bland products of professional pop stars have been feeding us. May the punks set this rat-infested industry on fire. Both of your stories have involved rats. Yeah. (laughs) Real or fake? Hypothetical. Imaginary. What I know of Slash is what most people remember it for. Insanely cool graphic design. Its layouts felt improvised and they felt fresh. logo was dripping blood the photographs of that's a horror magazine i like it take this to the acker mansion
1: (laughs) i just realized that's another magazine we talked about famous monsters of filmland that was an la magazine we could
0: have saved that one for now
1: yeah we should have planned two years ahead for this for this monumental episode the
0: photographs of the covers were cool the covers are amazing you like blondie and alice bagg and darby crash who i bad mouth last episode wait blondie yeah heart of glass blondie yeah she was punk
1: also was she from la
0: no she's from new york but they like if blondie was coming to la they'd photograph her
1: like but still she was punk
0: new wave mm. it got swallowed up at the beginning of it it was all sort of punk they and then, like evolve. anybody who well, started and, as a horror monster magazine and then it went to and punk. then it, and then it became music <laughs> anybody that could play on the radio became new wave and then they immediately isolated themselves <laughs> from the rest of the bunch <laughs> like the go-go's go-go's were punk for a while and they're like no 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 this isn't gonna last <laughs> the color schemes were really clever and eye-catching the fanzines punk and sniffing glue were not Appealing. They were cool, but they were not appealing to like look Slash looked good. It looked really cool. You could frame them as posters if you wanted to. The covers were amazing. The photographs were great. Slash was the first place that printed the now famous comic Jimbo from uh, Gary Panther, who's a oh, really wow. well known cartoonist, who was involved in seeing Jenny Lenz and Ed Culver cut their teeth as photographers. There's like Jenny Lenz, I think, has her own book now. Quickly, the fan scene became the Bible of the Alley Punk scene. I talk about Bibles a lot. Simonov and Neeson and their. <laughs> Take a hint, everybody. <laughs> I'm converting. Sunday's coming up. Just uh if you want to know where to find me, I'm going to be in the <laughs> only good place to be on a Sunday. I'll be in my uh, customized reserve pew. <laughs> I bought it. With money? And if you can't buy your own pew with money, are you really religious? If you can't buy your way into heaven, <laughs> how are you going to get
1: there? <laughs> See you in hell I'm gonna Or be, people. I'm
0: going to be buried with a hundred dollar bill rolled into a square in my palm of my hand.
1: <laughs> Ready to grease Ready. the palm of yeah, St. Joseph or whatever. Peter's at the door. <laughs> Peter's at the door.
0: <laughs> I think Big Peter Dick's calling. at the door. <laughs> big Dick here, welcome <laughs> to heaven. St. Big Dick here. St. Dick. <laughs> Little St. Dick. Ooh. Ooh, little saint dick oh god start the fire in the chimney don't let him down is somebody home anybody have coca-cola Never. and a poker table because i got a
1: lot of angel gold
0: anybody have a coca-cola and some money i could borrow simonoff i hope i'm saying his name right s-i-m-i-o-f Simonov, neeson and their group of writers were guaranteed to be at the best shows of the scene and would surely rush back to document them in slash because they were involved in the scene they captured the energy and the creativity of the punk scene from the beginning of the slam pits which is an la thing to the new bands on the horizon slam pits slam pits like mosh pits but like slamming yeah no mosh mosh pit is a very outsider term for what happened in the grunge scene which is like jocks bouncing on shoulders a slam pit was usually like a bunch of kids running in a circle with the intention of shoving each other into not
1: didn't we see Kids. people doing that when we went to that X concert? Yeah. That's what people were doing? That's what people were doing. I thought they were summoning some sort of dust devil oh, yeah, or something. Yeah, they kill the devil
0: and then you slam pit around it. Yeah. What's funny is that we saw X were at Hollywood Park yeah. and it was a bunch of kind of an older crowd and they're doing like a slower version of that. <laughs> but yeah, if you watch footage from like Decline of Western Civilization. <laughs> a Civil- shove pit. A shove pit, yeah. A lean congregation. If you yeah. watch footage from Decline of Western Civilization, which is a documentary about the Ali Punk scene, it's like watching those old slam pits like, oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it, it still goes on in backyards and like little shows now. I act like like it doesn't exist, they still exist. They're called cockfights now. Slush seemed to follow pretty close the band the Germs as they developed and fell apart. They seemed to be right there. It was easy because it was
1: pretty quick. Suspicious. Have we ever seen them in the same room together? oh yeah, it would think that
0: members of a band and the writers of a magazine were the same people. The Screamers held their debut performance at Simonos Pico Boulevard Studio. They also stretched their arms out and interviewed and covered reggae and rockabilly people since they were both had a presence in the Los Angeles scene. There was also interviews with John Waters and there's an interview with Sci-Fi and all of Philip K. Dick, Ooh, who would bash Big the Dick, Spooky Dick. Philip, dick. Yeah,
1: that's that's the best way to describe his book. Yeah, spooky. You know, like how Slash was a horror magazine. Philip K. Dick books are so spooky.
0: They're spooky in that sci-fi sort of way, right? <laughs> I'm like, I don't, I don't want to think about who, what kind of person I am. Yeah, or I don't, don't want to think
1: about androids dreaming about anything at night.
0: In that interview, he bashed the Orange County Homeowners Association for some reason. I <laughs> because don't know. he was insane. Because <laughs> <No, laughs> he had no that's sense what... of logic. They also started a record company called Slash Records around 1978. I I believe with the initial purpose of releasing the first germ single, which they also had to raise money for. <laughs> Other bands who had albums on Slash Records, Los Lobos, who my family abandoned me. At the moment of truth of Y2K were like, hey, we're going to go watch Los Lobos. And we're like, dude, the ball drops on the Century in like a minute.
1: Wild Lobos Wild- are going to be running through here if you're not with me. X- Los
0: Lobos. We're going to a Los Lobos concert at the stroke of midnight. At the stroke of midnight of the Century. <laughs> we laugh about Y2K <laughs> now, but at the moment we're like, dude, it could really happen. And they're like, hey, we're going to go watch this Band from our youth. (laughs) This is the millennium of Los Lobos. (laughs) They're going to be our new gods once all this (laughs) stuff turns off. Slash Records had Los Lobos. They put out the first X album. They put out a Knitters album. Knitters is just X performing country blues band. It's just them with different instruments and different. It's pretty good. Hmm. The Gun Club. I don't think so. And they also put out the album of the first punk band I ever fell in love with, the Violent Femmes. So I Slash Records, I want to kiss them in the mouth directly a little bit of time. Dear my. By 1979, Slash and the first wave of punk was near its end. Neeson and Simonoff had broken up, tugging at the glue that held Slash together. Some bands were breaking up. Others were gaining popularity and leaving the scene. Other bands had members dying off. Darby Crash of the germs, died of a heroin overdose literally the day before John Lennon was shot.
1: Suspicious. Or you ever you? see them in the same room together?
0: They were That's both right. shot by something. Simonoff continued on to another publication, then opened a gallery called Steve's House of Fine Art, which was mentioned in the Simpsons book for some reason. In the book about the unauthorized oral history history. of the simpsons when i was doing a google search i'm like what are you talking about they're talking about (laughs) raymond Pettibon, but i don't know why they brought this up but they didn't even bring up that he helped start slash Record. whatever you're philip k dicking here i'm sorry um (laughs) became a renowned photographer and started working for different music labels as an art director and in terms of being a historical record of a cultural moment slash is perfection Mm. it contributed and was contributed to by the people who made up the scene it was an exact reflection in tone content and energy of the alley punk scene if you worry that you've missed all the slash fan scenes don't worry they have been wonderfully digitized and made free and available online.
1: Um, That's not very punk.
0: Uh, Well, you know, yeah. Punk is dead and it's a free online now.
1: Coming up on uh, my last magazine here, the punkest of magazines that you could ever think of. What is it? Punk magazine? L.A magazine los oh, angeles magazine boy, our friends blah blah that's right for la by la it's the magazine of los angeles and this very s- good magazine in the 60s there was no magazine that was just about the goings-on around la some tried but they were all just weak imitations of the new yorker and all of them failed at this time there were no magazines just about a city at all anywhere oh, yeah. like it just didn't, there was something in philadelphia and san diego had something going on from what i can tell but the modern city magazine as we know it didn't exist until this one came around mm-hmm. they created that city magazine genre and it was started by two people the first was George Jeffrey Miller born August 1st 1936 in Salt Lake City and his family moved to Beverly Hills when he was just a few months old when Miller was 13 he was an altar boy at Elizabeth Taylor's first wedding to Conrad Hilton Jr <laughs> really yeah the son of the founder of Hilton Hotels that marriage lasted eight months and Hilton went on to have an affair with Jaja Gabor in <laughs> 1944 who is his stepmom gross dig- that I insist we take. Yeah. Miller went to Good Shepherd and Loyola High and then went on to get his master's degree in journalism from UCLA in 1959 and was working on a magazine as part of his final project or whatever yeah. when he met an advertising man named David Brown. Miller's magazine was gonna be about urban arts, but Brown convinced him to make it into something that celebrated Los Angeles to celebrate the unruly young city in all its contrary glory. It would accept the community on its own terms as the collection of villages. It truly was still looking for an identity, not a center. So in the summer of 1960, the two men hand cut and pasted together the first issue of the Southern California prompter in 1961. It promptly was renamed Los Angeles Magazine. Their tagline, Guide to the Good Life in LA and Suburbia. That's nice. Yeah. You can feel the sunglasses sliding onto your face. Mm -hmm. Their offices were on Rodeo Drive before it was an expensive area and they had $50,000 in startup funds and a staff of six to eight and they quickly started losing money and staff. Uh, Within a year, they were out of money but Brown kept the lights on by skipping a few issues to mm -hmm. save money until they secured more funding from Harry. Volk, who was the head of Union Bank. It was, and it still is, a monthly magazine. Early issues ranged from 48 to 64 pages and had no art or pictures in it because I was out of the budget. Just blocks of text. They weren't pretty Daniel likes the perfect magazine. (laughs) Information given to me efficiently.
0: (laughs) No paragraph (laughs) breaks, just give me all the words. Pour the ink
1: on it, I'll make the words. Like
0: It was written by Jack Torrance. Go ahead. (laughs) All
1: work and no Los Angeles magazine make Jack a doll boy. So they were ugly. They weren't good to look at But what they had going on for them was that they were so well written. The articles were witty and they were lively. Most of the writers they had working for them just wrote for them as extra work apart from their regular writing jobs at Time Life, which had headquarters nearby their headquarters. These are people like Jim Murray, who went on to be a Pulitzer Prize winning sports writer. Charles Champlin, who went on to be a silent movie star. A tramp. He was a big film critic. And then there was Art Seidenbaum, who went on to be the LA Times book editor and founder of the LA Times Book Prize. Some more recognizable names they managed to trick into writing for them was Carolyn C. Joseph Wambaugh, Bud Schulberg, Ray Bradbury, Harlan wow. Ellison, and Robert Towne, writer of Chinatown, wow. and its Godfather 2 of sequels the two Jakes.
0: <laughs> they did a really great crime issue. and uh, Much later on. Much than, later on, yeah, but they, it was a fantastic thing. Uh, Michelle McNamara, the late wife of Hannah well. Oswald, wrote a thing about the Golden State Killer, which she was like an extensive researcher on the subject. In Los and Angeles it, yeah, magazine. And it, it's fantastic. It's one of my favorite things I've ever read in my life. There weren't
1: many regular writers for the magazine, so to keep people from thinking correctly that the whole magazine was being written by the same three people, they also used pseudonyms, much like Don Carlos Loomis. These early writers were being paid between two Two and five cents a word, but often were offered stock in the magazine instead of pay because they just didn't have money.
0: We're gonna make it one day, then you'll get paid. Mm-hmm.
1: All of this stock will be as good as money, but it's not.
0: <laughs> Don't spend it yet.
1: Their first permanent film critic was a friend of Miller's from UCLA named Bert Prolutsky, who would be very critical of movies at a time when most publications weren't very critical of movies. He went on to write for MASH.
0: I thought MASH was a magazine I'd never heard of. So MASH yeah. Magazine?
1: <laughs> Albert E. <D>. Mashman? <laughs> same guy, right? So he's almost the same. He doesn't have a gap in his teeth. Alfred. Though. Alfred Newman. In the early 70s, the magazine was still struggling financially, and the much younger New York magazine kept offering to buy them out, but New York magazine was struggling too, so that never happened. Instead, in 1973, Brown stepped down. That was the Variety headline. Uh, Brown Brown, downtown! (laughs) downtown. L.A. was sold to Seth Baker, the whole city, who ushered in a new era for the magazine. To try to attract more readers, they came up with special features that are now the staple of all city-focused magazines in the country, like the restaurant issue, the best and worst issue, real estate guide, best schools. Their 52 great weekends in May became an annual tradition that they still do for Los Angeles. They created all of those tropes that you see in- everything that you read now. Like the LA Weekly. Yeah. They had things like event calendars and personality profiles, but they became known for better or worse for being focused on celebrity and fine living. They were seen as being obsessed with celebrity so much so that they're credited with inventing celebrity journalism. (laughs) What an honor. Yeah. A lot of that was just based on their covers though, because Baker pushed them to use LA's greatest natural resource on their covers, celebrities. So this was something that only fan magazines did regularly. So they were, yeah. So they were worried it would make them seem too Hollywood centric. So to to get over that, they put the celebrities doing like playful things and yeah. didn't make them seem glamorous, but rather like regular residents of the city. The April 1977 cover with Farrah Fawcett went on to be her second best-selling poster ever. Really? She's on all fours like,
0: hi. <sighs> Not the one with the red shirt where she's like, hair uh, kickbacked.
1: kickback? Is she on all fours? No. Then no. Okay. This one, she's on all fours. Okay. You know, one, two, three, four. Arms and legs. She's playing the, the drums. Yeah. Four by four. This new visual era the magazine brought in a lot more art and photography to the issues with guys like Herb Ritz, Matthew Rolston, Greg Gorman, and Terry Gilliam. Oh, wow. The one you're thinking of. By 1974, their circulation was up to 17,000, but with the 70s came not only unshaven disco boogies, but also local competition. The LA Times didn't have music, film, or food critics at the time like LA Magazine did, so they decided to steal all of them from (sighs) them. So they got them all. On top of that, in 1976, New York Magazine launched a direct competitor in LA called New West. It followed the same format as New York Magazine, only for Los Angeles. Their launch was Heralded by a huge ad campaign that denied the existence of LA Magazine and then hired all the writers they had left to work for them. So, their big money back promotion worked and they were pretty successful. But the popularity of a New York funded magazine about Los Angeles made rich New York advertisers aware of the Los Angeles market. So, they started running ads in Los Angeles magazine themselves. So, now LA magazine had not only local ads, which New West couldn't get a hold on because LA magazine, they were loyal to them. So, now they had that and also national ads. And then they caught another break when an LA based Time magazine writer wrote an article about the New West LA magazine rivalry and painted LA Magazine as the good guy. And then this article got media companies interested in the magazine like ABC who bought them in 1977. And then with ABC behind them, they went from 79,000 subscribers in 1977 to 172,000 in 1979. They got so many advertisers through ABC that at their peak, one issue had 600 pages in it. Over half of them were ads. (laughs) Imagine 300 pages of advertisements.
0: I would have to read every one because I'm a completist. Yeah, and buy them all. I mean, I'd go bankrupt. In
1: 1978 and 79, they had more ad pages than any other monthly magazine in the country. Ridiculous, but successful. (laughs) With the end of the 70s and the country getting more serious, suddenly articles about Alfred Hitchcock's favorite place to eat a turkey or whatever they were doing, it wasn't legitimate enough, so they shifted their reporting to things that were more hard-hitting and deep digging. They did stories criticizing the local government for not preserving city history. In 1978, they did one on the bad water quality in LA. Around this time, they were nominated for a national Magazine Award for General Excellence who served General in World War II.
0: Accidents. Nothing specific. Really general excellence, though.
1: In the late 80s, they did an expose on the Billionaire Boys Club and the McMartin Preschool case. Miller stepped down as editor in 1990 and acted as publisher for four years before retiring for good. He left the magazine with the circulation of over 160,000. Miller died on April 16th, 2011 at age 74 of a rare brain disorder called progressive supranuclear palsy. Brown had died April 18th, 1989 of bone cancer at age 62. Yikes. So don't get into the... Don't go in the printing room. Back. During the nineties, the magazine went through different phases trying to reinvent itself. In nineteen ninety-five, Robert Sam Anson became editor and he focused the magazine just on putting down Hollywood. <laughs> he was fired after five months. <laughs> Spencer Beck made fashion its focus for three years. In the year two thousand in the year two thousand, it was sold to Emmis Communications for thirty million and Kit Rashless became editor. He came from the LA Times and The Village Voice and LA Weekly and he brought with him like legitimate literary credentials and continued in that hard hitting in depth yeah. tradition. Readership slowly went down, as it did with all magazines, and in 2011, circulation was around 140,000, and just this February of 2017, it was sold for $6.5 million to a Detroit company named Our Media Group, who ended up also getting Atlanta, Cincinnati, and Orange Coast magazines in the deal, and immediately, over half a dozen high-ranking people, all women, including their editors, publisher, and head of digital strategy, were all laid off Ugh. immediately. It's been hard for one magazine to try to unify and be relevant to a city that has so many different regions that all have distinct interests and needs so it's going to be a lifelong process for LA Magazine to figure out exactly what it is and what it probably won't stay for that long because the city it's always the city she's always changing (laughs) again another story whose ending is yet to be determined oh they were just Canceled yeah,
0: I didn't realize that Los Angeles Magazine was that old. I thought it was like a new recent thing. Yeah, I don't know why you thought it was from like three years ago. That's when I bought that copy of the magazine. Yeah. And never <laughs> Magazines don't before. exist until I buy it. Yeah, no. I pretty much make or break companies. And I usually break. <laughs> <laughs> now on to the Los Angeles-based magazine that ripped off our name. Ugh, the nerve. LA Weekly, Should we talk about- You're saying it wrong. Should we talk about when we went to the Archives Bazaar and everyone got really excited and then they said,
1: oh wait, no. It it didn't just happen at the Archives Bazaar. Anywhere we go. Anywhere we go. Oh, LA Weekly, great. Come on in. Oh, no. Oh, what have we done? And now they can't
0: leave. (laughs) (laughs) LA Weekly was founded in 1978 by Jay Levin, who acted as president editor until the early 90s. And he also started this with an investment group that Levin assembled that would become the board of directors that included Burt Kleiner, Joe Bandedon, Pete Cameron, and actor Michael Dunn. Douglas, who was in the L.A. film Falling Down, the plot of which is like a story you could read only in L.A. Weekly. He also assembled a core editorial staff, which included Joy Davidow, Michael Ventura, Ginger Varney, Bill Bentley, and Big Boy Medlin, and a gang of freelancers. Not a gang like a street gang, but a gang like a unit of measurement. Like a bunch. Their first office was on the corner of Sunset and Western in a two-story house bungalow deal. It was formed by Levin, who had experience with local-based journalism coming from the Austin Sun. That's a newspaper, not a place. He and his staff sought out to take the cultural pulse of LA. Its very first issue ran a story about female comedians, when Sandra Bernhardt was one of them. Over the years, the Alley week has been called all sorts of things, from, like, hip to superficial, hard-hitting investigative stories to shallow surface-level articles. It's been called a CERBIC, and artsy tabloid, and a a dirt bag and i want to kiss it but it's also a millionaire but and all of these things seem to encompass los angeles especially something that comes out weekly it has reported on so many things since 1978 always sort of following the ebb and flow of the city when a trend or an incident comes up in the city you can depend on the weekly to report on it with what i always read as being impartial but it's always pretty left to center <laughs> some of their first breaking stories were in regards to smog regulations leading to the chief of the enforcement of the south coast air quality management district being fired they also reported on the mass slaughter in el salvador and the massacres in Pal- Refugee camps during Israel's first invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Levin's vision was not centered on Los Angeles, but bringing global stories to Los Angeles readers for free, as well as keeping what's up that price again. No, what's that? It's free every Thursday. It's free, as well as keeping updated on civic cultural waves. Through the years, there's been plenty of stars emerging from the writing for Alley Weekly. Jonathan Gold was a famous food writer mm-hmm. who started Alley Weekly. He would stake out pun intended (laughs) small alley eateries and make them famous alan rich was a famous classical music critic nikki fink was a film industry blogger who published a weekly column before leaving in 2009 to found a deadline hollywood daily christine palestick broke the story about the grim sleeper on the pages pages of alley weekly yeah through the years the alley weekly become the nation's most widely read alt weekly but that's according to the weekly so i don't know if that's true it's definitely the uh, largest they're, they're impartial yeah it's definitely the largest of any urban weekly in the west it was true that the weekly has yeah. won more awards from the association of alternative news media than any other publication in the u.s hmm. and in 2007 it became the first newspaper to be awarded with the pulitzer prize for a restaurant criticism thanks to jonathan gold that's so weird to get a pulitzer for food yeah they must have been really good <laughs> aren't you a fan of those what jonathan gold's writings um or are you more of a Bourdain guy, or is that comparable at all?
1: I mean, if we're gonna compare them, I would prefer Anthony Bourdain, but he's not like an like They're Jonathan Gold specifically. La, I've been disappointed by recommendations from Jonathan Gold before. Like what? Oh, let's let's name names. You're right. We shouldn't do that. I okay. can't think of any either. Oh, okay. I just know I've been disappointed before and I blame it on Jonathan Gold. That's good.
0: Oh, my car isn't where I left it. Jonathan the, Gold. Jonathan Gold again.
1: Pulitzer Prize, Pulitzer
0: Prize, parking ticket, more like it. In 1985, the freelancers who wrote for Alley Weekly made moves to secure a contract ensuring that they receive pay increases, standard editorial policies would be implemented, health benefits and grievance procedures would be put into place. When was this? 1985. It was reportedly one of the first times Freelancer journalists started a union to fight for more accommodations. In nineteen ninety three, LA Weekly started the O C edition uh, for Orange County. Off the OC Weekly. The O C Weekly, which was run a completely separate operation but part of the same family. I've never picked up an O C weekly but I assume it's politically and culturally very different. Around the same time, Weekly moved from its offices in Silver Lake into the old Hollywood border yeah. building on Sunset Vine. By this time the weekly reported a circulation of hundred and seventy thousand readers. In nineteen ninety four
1: to do when you give it out for free take that. You
0: pick it up, you're a reader. That
1: pigeon looked at it. It's a reader. reader. Yeah, I bet he has kids. Let's add <laughs> ten.
0: The wind picked it up. It's a reader. Mother uh, <laughs> Earth reads. <laughs> weekly. In 1994, the Alley Weekly was bought by New York's Village Voice, which was one of the oldest mm. and most respected alternative newspapers and became part of the Voice Media Group family. It also
1: auditioned on The Voice. Dim.
0: And that lost pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Charles Barkley or whatever. Gnarls Charles Barkley said. <laughs> Charles
0: Barkley. Charles <laughs> Barkley. Gnarls Barkley. C- Celo.
1: Gnarls or whatever. Charles
0: Barks. <laughs> Carl Marks. Charles Marks. <laughs> Charles Marks. League. Now, I can't follow the string of purchases after Village Voice Media Group, but I read in 2005 that they were bought again, and then I read by 2013 they were once again looked over by Voice Media Group, so I don't know. Yeah, really, that's the I last
1: I've known about yeah, it. Yeah, I
0: can't really follow the pattern. I will, I'll just tell you everything I read, though. According to a scattering of articles, The Weekly was once again bought in 2005 by New Times Media, and this worried a lot of people. The Weekly was notoriously, like I said, a left-wing magazine. The New Times was not. The New Time editor, formerly of the Phoenix New Times, and the media executive editor of the Village voice his name was michael lacy and lacy was not left the center he was hard right and had very little patience for pc culture vote trump you're all crybaby snowflake cucks my generation was tougher. um i thought you were gonna say something mean and I... no i support that ah, i'm totally on <laughs> board stop being crybaby i had to walk barefoot in snow two miles up way both ways white
1: snow pure white <laughs> keep snow white make america snowy again if you know what i mean if you know what i if it get my drift that these are the views of la weekly so don't yeah not don't come after me no, on no, this. No, we're
0: all about dirty snow I like slush. What can I say? That's what I like. That's what I like! <laughs> Hello, babe. Whenever political activism would break out in the city, the paper would seemingly take the side of the authorities and chastise any protesters. That's weird. Yeah, it's a really weird shift. When union leader Miguel Contreras was found dead of a heart attack in South LA, the Weekly reported that the next week the place where... He should have had a better heart. In my day, hearts were stronger. <laughs> the Weekly reported that the next week the place where he died, there was a police raid thrown on it and it was a house that ran a prostitution ring. More than insinuating that Contreras was there for prostitutes, news may but more of like a shock factor tabloid than actual mm-hmm. reporting. Many writers for the Weekly criticized that move because Contreras never made issues about sex or the sanctity of marriage, so throwing this veil of prostitution over sex yeah. felt really cheap. In 2007, Lacey was arrested for revealing grand jury information after publishing the description of a subpoena issued in Maricopa County, which is not in LA. The LA Weekly continued on reporting the events and occurrences of the city, shifting tones, and taking all sides. In January 2017, the LA Weekly went up for sale. Whatever direction this is all taken in, the LA Weekly will just go with it because it sort yeah. of always just goes there Since it's inception, and has seen itself as a hard-hitting journalistic unit that takes the cultural pulse of the city and whether that is their actual output or not they are striving for it like Forbes magazine once called LA Weekly it was, was saying it was dishing up liberal politics at LA yuppies and as early as 1990 the LA Times ran a headline LA people we- are so kind <laughs> every single publication is so kind to each other LA Times ran a headline LA Weekly's adolescence proves to be a troubling one like they've always been sort of put down but they always seem to like be very good at finding themselves again yeah. yeah they have been called CZ Tablet we have gone on record and made fun of them mm. No. Nah. We- no, no, no. but we pick up every issue every thursday yep. and because LA weekly is part of the city it's part of, it's now part of the history because we want to know if they're suing
1: us yeah we want to know if we've been mentioned yet i can't wait for the day they accidentally misprint their own title
0: oh god it's gonna be so funny
1: I, you know what i i wait for the day when people think oh la Weekly's here oh it's la weekly
0: oh god LA weekly's here i guess they're gonna make us famous now <laughs> <Not like that. laughs> they're LA gonna have Weekley. to pay for
1: their own food i shouldn't have to pay for food anymore Jonathan Gold. If
0: Jonathan Gold gives me another bad review, I want free food. Is there anything in their Wikipedia page about us yet? We can add it tonight. You want to do it while we're sitting here? We should. Set a timer and
1: see how long it
0: takes for that to be taken down. We'll jokingly say that they sued us for slander. Yeah. And then they're they're (laughs) going to keep it on the page because they're going to sue us for slander. We're just predicting the future here. Yeah, no, it's just what we do. They sued the- This (laughs) is what we do. Weekly Wonky sues founders of Punk Rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> Weekly
1: wallops meekly. Meekly meatheads. <laughs> meekly meatheads mosh into Mother's House because they have no money anymore. So, yeah, those are a smattering of our city's publications. publications.
0: Each one of them seemed to, at some point, really encapsulate what the city was about and then probably lost composure. There are some, Hollywood Reporter, Alley Weekly, Los Angeles magazine, they're still running. All these magazines seem to encapsulate the era which they were, I don't want to say created, but, like, when they were thriving, they really caught something about the city, and that's really yeah, great.
1: Yeah, that's true. Mine, well, two of mine were basically made... To promote Los Angeles, and yeah, one of them was uh, a cheat sheet on what's going yeah. on in Los Angeles.
0: I had a subculture one, and I had Big Daddy, and Big Daddy sits on my lap. And you know what I say? I say, You're too big, you don't have an active timeline on your website, and also anything that would be about you is from you, so it doesn't make any sense.
1: Yeah, that was the difficulty in researching yeah. this. People aren't going to write their own histories yeah, in a, a not puff piece way. It's weird how, like, I really thought there would be a concise history of the Hollywood reporter, yeah. but there isn't. Everything's just about out the blacklist and yeah. I had to piece together like okay it started here went here and here and yeah. here
0: I read the Silverman name so many times <laughs> and I had to make a checklist and so many times like oh wait no I got the wrong Sid
1: <laughs> a competitor isn't going
0: LA magazine yeah, KCT's isn't going not gonna to write, yeah. yeah there's a lot of cutthroat in this industry Hidden History Valley is going to do an LA Meekly episode about the history of LA Meekly yeah you didn't listen to it oh god I look forward to any and all new LA magazines and podcasts because anything about the city sheds a different perspective I'm, I'm always yeah religious.
1: I don't welcome any more LA podcasts I okay the scene's crowded even this one is too much LA Weekly Los Angeles Magazine magazine. I'm writing new articles for Atlanta Sunshine all the time but it's fun to get a good magazine especially one that's so relevant to things you can go out and do
0: as much as we make fun of LA Weekly which we shouldn't I really do depend on it to give me opinions about the city that I'm like well I don't know what measure C is I don't know who I should be voting for you
1: didn't mention that their headquarters are now right off the 405 right off the
0: 405 in Westwood I didn't mention that it's
1: it's it's between Westwood and Culver City whatever area that would be. It's near Tito's Tacos.
0: I thought it was off of Wilshire. Maybe I'm thinking Variety. Variety is off of 405 as well. I didn't talk about that. How they're both off the 405.
1: 405, I don't know. I can't think of that. Here's a Variety headline for you. Leave us a review on iTunes. Or
0: we'll come and look for you. Yeah. Podcast,
1: pummel, Pummel, proud public. Pride is a sin. Don't be too prideful. Leave us a review. It helps us out. It helps our self-esteem. Makes it easier for people to find us. If you have an iPhone, just open the podcast app. Leave some... You
0: don't even have to leave a review. Just some star ratings would be... Nice. You can find us on Tumblr, which is our main hub, lameekly.tumblr.com. We have a podcast archive. We usually post pictures the day that the episode is released. We could follow us on Instagram, la underscore meekly. On Twitter, at lameekly. On Facebook, just look so for LA lameekly.
1: If you have uh, any episode suggestions, any comments, yes. or if you want to be a subject of our Field Trip episode, if you, if you think you got what it takes. Yeah, to answer um, 12 questions or whatever. Gnarls Marksley won't turn you down on this one. Yeah. We'll, say, we'll say yes to anything. Literally anything. Thing. literally anything if you have a murder dungeon invite <laughs> me to your house to kill me I'll, I'll go. be there as long as I get free admission
0: yeah and you have to answer the questions before you kill me
1: <laughs> will you kill me that's the first question we always ask <laughs> please don't kill me that's
0: not a question
1: <laughs> please don't kill me if you think you fit those qualifications send us an email la.meekly at gmail.com well have a good May mm-hmm. as we decided wait no, no, no. Have God. A good What's June. going on? Yeah. Have a good, good June, June. As we decided that this month shall be called. It is June. Yeah. Have a good Father's Day. Yes. For all of our father listeners. Summer's starting. Yeah. Go wiggle yourself at the beach. Go wiggle your little buttons. Draper said summer's coming. Summer's, Peggy, coming. summer's coming. Summer's coming. Well, winter may be coming as well, but I'm not on that network. I'm not that on that show. So summer's coming. <laughs> so thanks for listening. We hope you had a good episode 42, The Old Jackie Robinson. That has been yet another episode of LA Meekly creating catches consistently since. Two K13. What does that mean? (laughs) Tell me. What doth that mean? Is that
0: about Return of the King?